to another installment of Show to Be with Mike G, the show of life, the show of academia, Brexit, London, The Clash, that's right, The Clash. We talk a lot of music in today's chat with the director of Whiskey Outreach at Diageo, Dr. Nicholas Morgan. Here's one bit, here's a little update. He said he didn't see The Clash when we were chatting, but once we spoke again, he did in fact see The Clash. So if you needed yet another reason to find Dr. Nick, all that more charming and exciting and interesting. There you go. Here's the one bit, though, I think is really important about this chat. Yes, we talk whiskey. Yes, we talk Diageo. There's some great bits of historical facts here that I didn't even realize about the whiskey industry in the UK. But there's an interesting and alarming parallel between what had happened at the time with the Brexit issue with Trump just taking office. And I think we're seeing more and more of that futility. We're seeing more and more of that conflict, the misogyny, the isolationism. It's very interesting, and it's really great to get some insight from Dr. Nick on the subject itself. So without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy this excellent chat with Dr. Nicholas Morgan. Well, spending some time here. Not, not, not entirely random, Mike. I mean, um, actually, my daughter's in the music industry. Is she really? So she um, has been across to Austin for South by Southwest, yeah. you know, frequently, and uh, has talked very highly of the city. Yeah. And I know some other friends in the music business who've... What does she do, mind you? Uh, she's... Um, well, she does two things, really. She is creative director for publishing at Beggars Music, who, you know, the biggest independent in, yeah, the, in the UK. In fact, probably biggest independent full stop. And then as a sort of side project, which has probably got a bit bigger than she anticipated, she manages a band called Glass Animals, who have been yeah. doing really well here. I'm very familiar yeah. with them. Yeah, that's yeah. a brilliant band. Yeah. So, that's great. Yeah, no, it's a huge achievement. And... Uh, I've learned uh, as I watched her career with admiration that it's tough being a woman in the music business. You know, it really Absolutely. is. So I've got huge respect for what she's achieved. And, and regrettably, I mean, I think this is really an apt time to, to, to maybe dive into this a little bit. This week's been really tough for us in the States. Yes. Are you getting any of that? Like, just come in. <laughs> well, that's, that would be an understatement. But remember, we had a very tough week in that's July. Great point. Yes. And um, just just so that you know, it's not going to make you feel any better. <laughs> we are a long way from being out of that situation. It takes at a the long moment. time because it's. Will it be years? You think before the Brexit peace kind of starts to resolve? If the it does? Um, well, the for, the formal the formal exit process takes two years. So that's that's. Um, that's at least as long as it will be. But just the aftermath from the election, the two, um, the two rival camps are still seem to be as bitterly opposed as they were before it. And strangely, the 
the winners seem more angry than the losers, which is rather <laughs> odd. Which is so um, strange. We're over here gloating, if you didn't know. Now, I'm not part of the winning group, necessarily. Yeah, no yeah. one in Austin is, frankly. But, you know, we're, the states are rallying around Trump, which is, you know, it's fine. And they are gloating so, so much. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand why, necessarily. But this kind of division that we're experiencing now, you know, you're saying you guys have experienced it. What is it? What does it stem from? I know there's socioeconomic things that probably could be causes, but why culture? Do you think that the country is split like that? It, it's it's interesting, Mike, because the way I look at it, there are real similarities between what's happened here and what happened in the UK yeah. for the uh, what's now called the Brexit. Uh, vote. That's not a bad term. Is that okay term to use? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay. That's, that's, want, yeah. That's what everyone calls it. Good, so good, that's okay. what it's become. And, um, you know, it, it seems, you know, you'll see it represented in this way in the media and newspapers, but it seems that there is a, a large group of people who, in, certainly in the UK, I think, who felt they were not part of the mainstream political discourse. Yeah. They were not necessarily included in uh, the, the minds of politicians largely from areas which have suffered economically very badly over yeah. the past 20, 30, 35, 40 years. Is it typically more rural areas? No, no, these, are, these, not, are, okay. these are former industrial areas. Okay. Prin- principally, there's some, some significant rural areas, but if you look at the big, heavy Brexit voting areas, I would imagine if you looked at them socially and economically, they yeah. wouldn't look particularly different from the areas I think that of voted Detroit. for Mr. Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I think yeah. you're absolutely right. yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's characterized as the sort of dispossessed fighting back, you know, wanting to be heard. Yeah. Um, I mean, with, with Brexit, I think it's one thing to fight back, but then you've got to figure out what you're going to do next. And we have no, no idea at the moment. Yeah. I think we don't either. Yeah, You know, we, sure. we wanted this change. Well, well, many of us, half of us, let's say, wanted this change. We didn't know exactly what it looked like. We blamed whoever we could mm-hmm. for our own shortcomings. And that's the problem. And I don't think that that never seemed to be the narrative with the, the Brexit piece for us, right? Like, when I think of misogyny and I think of prejudice and bigotry, that's not something that's really synonymous with the UK. You know, the, the states have their own particular flavor of yes. bigotry. We really do. Yes, that's pro- probably right. But clearly there were um, un- undertones of racism in the uh, in the European vote in the UK, I think in some quarters. And certainly I think the thing that distressed a lot of people who wanted to stay in the EU was that the, the the vote to leave sort of represented a really backward-looking sort of insularity, yeah. parochialism, um, you know, we can do best by ourselves. Well, you know, the fact of the matter is in the global economy, you can't do the best by was yourself, it, it you Isolationism, is that kind of... Sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. almost. Yeah. That, like somehow that uh, you have this nationality or uh, patriotism is what we, we called it for some time, that somehow we can... Sur- we can survive on our own. We'll what, what, be just fine. One of one of the things that people said that you heard quite a lot was, "We want our country back." Yeah. Oh my God! Are you kidding me? We want same sentiment back. exactly. Yeah. We want America to be great again. Mm. I guess for some reason it became less than great. Well, mm. didn't want to dive into it too much, but it, there is this parallel, and I think you're, we're catching each other on a week where a lot of us feel very overwhelmed and well, downtrodden. You uh, know? Seriously, Mike, the the the. The days and weeks immediately after the Brexit vote in the UK were very, very strange. Yeah. And coming here and talking with guys driving taxis and stuff like that, 
I, I get a sense that it's equally strange it here. Is. It's not, and it's not weird like Austin is supposed to be. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just sort of strange. You know? It's got this like weird. Uh, the, it's dis, discordant. Yeah, the notes, the the vibe is just yeah. not meshing right now. Absolutely, it's an interesting time, and I, I'm sure you're still going to find good food, good music. You talk about heading to Antones tonight. I think it's going to be a great stay. But so. On the advice of your daughter, who's doing very well. Like- so, on the advice of my daughter and, and other friends, and um, just because the city has uh, does have this reputation, there's the music thing. Yeah. Um, I'm a blues guy, and although um, Stevie Ray Vaughan is probably not actually one of my favorite artists, he just has such a, a presence, and all my guitar teachers absolutely worship him for his technical skills again i mean i'm not large sure. heavy gauge strings man well heavy yeah. gauge strings and this um skanking style which you know yeah. is almost unique really yeah, um true. so there's a, there's just well you've got to come to austin really well so i take you for a guitar player then uh as something of a guitar player. or how about an ex-guitar player? Yeah, no, no, no 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 i play <laughs> i still play in fact i've played more over the past five or ten years than i probably did the previous 20 years no so, kidding yeah was so let's let's i think that's the perfect way to kind of seek into your growing up and you're from the uk obviously from the uk where did you grow up so um i'm not sure how familiar people listening to this will be with the uk but we're so enlightened actually <laughs> <laughs> don't worry yeah. um i i was born in uh, in warwickshire that's famous because it's where william shakespeare comes from no, stratford okay. upon avon so um my father was a police officer and uh as police officers do in the UK, we moved around different small towns yeah. in Warwickshire, and then he retired and moved to a town in Oxfordshire, and I moved there, which is where I sort of finished my schooling and then went off to university. Were you playing, so, because music, I feel, it's got to be some, a thread to you, like a, a, an undercurrent that kind of influenced you, even early on as like a middle, we call it junior school or pre Started playing the guitar when I was 13. Yeah, exactly, yeah. right? Yeah. Every, everyone wanted to play, everyone wanted oh, to play yeah. the guitar, everyone wanted to be in a band, uh, and I was certainly no different, and uh, so I started then, we had a couple of bands, uh, sort of playing rock and roll and stuff like that, old-fashioned rock and roll stuff like that. What kind of stuff would you say at that point was like really, really influential to you? Um, well, I think you know, it's hard to say. I mean, at that at that point, you listened, <laughs> you tended to listen to the music that your older, in my case, my older sister was listening to, uh-huh. uh, and in the case of my friends, many of their older brothers were listening to. Right. So there was sort of two or three different strands. There was definitely a blues strand, you know, old style country blues for the most country part. Blues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Mississippi John Hurt, you okay, know, those okay. really melodic um, type of guys. So electric blues came along a bit later. That was a sort of discovery thing. Yeah. Um, so there was that thread. Then there was English folk. Yeah, what, um, uh, yeah tell me who, who would you say is the quintessential English folk artist? Well, um, I suppose, well, today... Uh, well no I mean even back then well so back then we were listening to people like John Renborn and Bert Yanch and people like that who were just wonderful wonderful guitarists and singers and they were sort of reinventing you know folky people talk about the tradition right right. so these guys were reinventing the tradition with huge technical skills and a lot of empathy for the songs writing their own songs uh, as well Uh, people like Martin Carthy Dave Swarbrick when I lived in Oxfordshire, actually, we lived close to a village called Cropperdy. Okay. And Cropperdy was really famous because it was where, at the time, 
most of the band called Fairport Convention played, who were okay. one of the first pioneer folk rock bands. Interesting. Had people like Richard Thompson, you know, yeah. one of the oh, best yeah. guitarists in the world ever. And people like Richard Thompson in the band. And they had, had a big festival there every year, which still goes on. It's sort of one of the big folk events in the UK music calendar. So there was a lot of that folk stuff. Interesting folk, yeah. Uh, yeah, going on. And um, I still listen to a lot of that stuff, actually, that older stuff. And now there are mo modern folk music in the UK is, is on know, fire. Yeah, I mean, who... Yeah, so now who is kind of leading that? Because I'm trying to think about modern folk and there's people in the states you know father john misty is kind of yeah like that here, yeah you know? okay okay um but i don't know like i think of so two 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 quite different uh sides of it there is a vocal group called uh the unthanks okay uh who are sisters from uh the north east of england um and they did that sort of blood harmony thing which yeah. is quite almost it's almost unnatural. It's not because it goes beyond harmony, you right, know, right, right. to to a very different place. And they have very dark, sort of brooding songs. Um, very uh, echoey and dreamy. Yes. Yeah. 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 So that's that's one thread that I I personally I have to like check that out. I'm not uh, familiar. Yeah. Like a lot. Uh, and then there's someone whose name I can't can't remember. Who I was going to say who's who's a great singer from Kent, guitar singer. So quite political, you know, which folk music yeah, should yeah. be, should have a point of view and an, and, a, and an attitude, and and you've got a lot of lot of stuff in between. But it's a it's a big thing now, which is which is great because I think there was a danger of it getting lost it at came, some point. It came kind of full circle. Yeah. Think about it. Now it took took a departure. Yeah. You've got new wave and all that's right. Buzzcocks and stuff, and which I, I don't know why I go for the Buzzcocks first, but very very great band. But but yeah, I mean it all it all cycles. Yeah. You know? And it really does, and the things that were once new are new again. Buzzcocks. Yeah. I, saw, I saw the Buzzcocks in uh, 78 in Manchester in a crazy festival. I'd been drinking, <laughs> I remember, <laughs> a lot of Boddington's beer, which was brewed in Manchester at the time from yeah. the, in the old brewery, which doesn't exist anymore. And it was a hot day. You know, it was one of those oh, things. Oh, man. Beer, but that's, hot that's day, amazing. Uh, I'm sitting Buzz here Cox. very envious. Yeah. just... Just astonishing. And then I went to see them, you know, because they're touring and they're still two of the original band. Yeah. And went to see them about four or five years ago in, uh, in London at the Shepherd's Bush Empire. And it was great. I mean, I'm too old to stand up. I was in the, <laughs> I was in the balcony sitting down. But the guys downstairs were sort of pogoing and all That's that incredible. stuff. It was great. It was just quite, quite Well, so uh, can I ask you? I'm going to ask you a couple other bands. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Inf influentials to, to the States especially, right? Do you ever see The Clash? Uh, no, I did not. Uh, sadly. Did you ever see the jam? Yes. How was the, how was Paul Weller? Uh, well, Paul, Paul Weller uh, was great, and I've actually been lucky <laughs> enough to see Paul Weller uh, a number of occasions since then at yeah. different different things. And he's he's someone that I've got a lot of admiration for. I like you know, him. he's he seems like uh, a great guy. He know he knows when he's doing good stuff, and it's that difficult thing. Um, you know, he knows when it's time to change yeah. and just say, "Okay, this is it." Very astute in that way. Yes, you know. And in fact, I was talking to someone about um, David Bowie, uh, you know, because man, if there was ever someone who knew when it was time to move on, could brutally, pitch in the brutally, yeah. uh, you know, it was it, it was him, and uh, and uh, Weller, I think, is the same, and he's produced some great music. He really you know, has. I mean, still, still quite good. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, uh, it's still very good, and a really good guitarist that people under, often don't see that. You they know, don't because he's he a man played, singing and he writes the songs exactly. and stuff. But he's a good guitarist. He's just a great all-around. I mean, he's somebody. There are a few 
but he's a guy I'd like to get a drink with. That's yeah. kind of, that's the ultimate yeah. barometer. Yeah. I and, think. And, and and I understand he likes a drink as that's well. So uh, <laughs> so you, it would be a good choice all the way I think around. That'd be a very apt yeah. choice. Yeah. Well, so you, as we all are at thirteen, we're playing guitar, we're forming bands, yeah. we want to do this thing. Yeah. Rock stardom is obviously on everybody's radar yeah. at that point. Were you much of a student then at that point? Yeah, I was. So, so, and it's quite interesting, you know, because I loved studying and I loved history uh, in particular, which is what I, what I went on to study at uh, university. Mm-hmm. Um, and I played and I got into that thing that people do when you're 18 and 19, which is start to write songs. Yeah. I, I, I have a theory that writing songs is much easier for younger people than it is for, for older people. It, um, it's got to be. Easier. Yeah, it's got to yeah. be, hasn't it? So I had no fear at that point and did all <laughs> that stuff. And there was sort of a moment uh, when I was at college, actually, at university, uh, when there, where there were a couple of guys who were sort of promoters and stuff. Um, and they said, well, you know, you could probably do this if you wanted to. Really? Um, but it's hard. You know, it's not, it's not easy. And at, at the time, I was just moving into taking my final exams and I was thinking of doing research. So it was sort of, well, you know, which, which way do I want to go? And I suppose being a bit um, fiat, as they would say in Scotland. So that, that is to say not having a boldness about me. Right, right. Um, I thought, no, well, I'll go the history way. And of course, no one had told me quite how hard it was doing history and researching because it's a lonely, long, sort of thankless task, really. Share. A bit like being a musician, yeah. I think. That's really. right. But at yeah. least, you know, at the end of the day or like after the end of a couple of hard weeks of writing these songs and getting mates together to play these things, at least you kind of get to share it. Yeah. You know, we think about history. It's very insular. It is. It you, is. You sit the long nights between you and the page. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So is it suffice it to say then you studied history was that kind of your specialty yeah i studied history and actually i was um although i hadn't studied it at school i had this idea that i was really really interested in early medieval history which what what uh, what drew you to early medieval uh well i don't know really i mean it's kind of dark stuff people killing each other for stupid reasons maybe maybe it's a bit sort of arthurian legend and you know it's uh it's a bit less tangible than 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 modern stuff and obviously less less well documented um but but i i I went to university and somehow my mind got changed so i ended up studying um sort of early modern late late early modern history and and religious history as well religious did you grow up religious no no my family of i mean church at easter and church at christmas right that sort of family because you got to (laughs) you have to to, well and when my father my father when he was a police officer he used Senior police officer has to show up in town at these events point, as well, yeah. you know. So there's that about it. But you pursued it very heavily, even to the point where you said, well, "This is worth developing a dissertation for." And that's what they yeah. call it there as well, yeah. Yeah, PhD. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's, it's a book, really. It's yeah. a big, it's a big piece of work, and um, I think there's it, there are two things really. There's the process of discovery, okay, because. History, being a historian is all about finding stuff out, I suppose, put it very simply. And um, actually today, Mike, just so you know, I'm as, I'm as driven by that uh, desire as I was when I did this research so like all the, these years ago. So like the undiscovered. Yeah, and I, and I think it's, it's the undiscovered, the unknown, trying to figure out 
where the boundaries are b between the unknown and the unknowable, which is ah, quite, that's a great quite an point. interesting one. Yeah. Um, and and, and I, also, I think, um, tr trying, trying to understand why it is, uh, frankly, this sounds very arrogant, so no, I apologize no. in advance. You're, you're much more accomplished than the two of us. It would be as arrogant <laughs> as you like. That's very kind. <laughs> try, try, trying to figure out why it is that people often get this stuff so badly wrong. And... That's if, a great if we, point, if yeah. we get onto the area of whiskey history, then we might we might go, go into that. But you know, people people make up stories, frankly, and th there's a process uh, which I have actually tracked uh, in a couple of instances, just to find out. Well, how did that actually? How did people come to believe that that was true? Right, that actually common knowledge happened, at some point, you know? right? Yeah, and. Um, Certainly in the, in the case of spirits and my involvement in the spirits business later, there are at least two instances, um, both occasions, when I tracked it down to a piece of copy that a copywriter had written about 25 years earlier. No kidding. And somehow creative copy... It was fabricated. Became, yeah, obviously it was creative copy. Yeah. Not for, I wouldn't call it fabricated. You know, someone was asked to imagine creative something. Creative copy, that's good, yeah. Um, but somehow over not too long a period, that becomes true. And the same happens in what you might call big history as well. Yeah. You know, things become true and they're not. They're just imagined at some point. That's you know. well, becomes history. You know, it's crazy. Do you find it humorous? I mean, there's probably a lot of consequences sometimes, from someone lying about history and recreating it. In sometimes sense. it can be humorous. I think um, there are other occasions when it is positively... Dangerous. So, Dangerous, yeah. Uh, here's the thing. There is something um, that you might be aware of called sort of golden age theory. Ah, uh -huh. okay. So we were talking about um, the recent elections in the UK, uh, about staying or leaving in the European Union. And um, one of the sentiments that the people leaving articulate, who w w were for leaving, uh, and of course were successful, articulated mm. very clearly was this idea of we want our country back. There was an idea of something in the past that has, had existed that does not exist today. And they were sort of struggling to articulate what that was. But that yeah. was a lot of the thinking was behind this sort of a, a mythological idea of the past. Now, in the world of whiskey, this is a <laughs> turn No, this left, is good. No, you, you, we, we think left. it seems like it's a tangent, um, but this is a parallel. In the world of whiskey, if you talk to a lot of, certainly in Scotch world, and I think also in bourbon world, I know enough bourbon oh, people yeah. to know this is true. Uh, if you talk to a lot of really engaged, but without wishing to sound rude, not necessarily terribly well-informed <laughs> enthusiasts That's about right. bourbon and Scotch, mm -hmm. they, oh, are, yes. oh, they are deeply in this golden age theory yeah there was a time when it was all better i see there was a time when it was all different there was a time when it was so much simpler than it is today. when it was great yeah oh yeah and we all loved each other and bloody blah, 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 blah. when the fuck Gold did that happen yeah. right like that's yeah. it, that you're right it is a pipe dream and i i think that going back to those moments where we'll, we'll use the standard make america great again right which implies a couple things, right? And this could be the same thing for history, but it implies that, one, things aren't great, okay? Well, what if they are great? You're telling me they're not, but why? I think it's great, right? And then when was it When was it great? Mm -hmm. And I love this. It's called the Golden Age. Golden Age theory, and it dates back to the Renaissance. In fact, before the Renaissance, I think. Really? Yeah. 
yeah. And so people... There is a famous painting. Which, yeah, which painting? Uh, 14th century painting, which is either called the Golden Age or certainly, you know, if you go to that thing called Google, which... <laughs> Masquerades as research for many people. Love it. Yeah, if you uh, if you type in Golden Age, you'll come up with these these paintings which which capture this idea, even even in the sort of late medieval period, that there was a time before when it was all it was all better and less halcyon days. Halcyon days. That's the word. Yeah, absolutely. That's crazy. Uh, But you know what? That's it. People are living in the past that they fabricated and created that never truly existed. Most most. Many, sorry, correct myself. <laughs> Many pasts and histories are imagined. Yeah. Okay. Um, I did a paper a couple of years ago, Tales of the Cocktails, which was actually called Scotch Whiskey's Imagined Past. And it was all about the way that the big, um, t- particularly the big blending houses, yeah. so like Johnny Walker and Dewar's, Buchanan's, the way that they very artfully and cleverly created a history for Scotch whiskey in the very late and uh, late nineteenth and early twentieth century. It's right. a new drink, right? Scotch yeah. doesn't have a history, real history, yeah. but they used advertising uh, with a precision that should frighten anyone in the advertising <laughs> industry today to create this mythological past. Uh, and they did it with great, great effect. It's really uh, so interesting, actually, to look at how they, how they did that. Um, and, and so that's just one example of an imagined history. You're you totally, know. this is all coming to yeah, me now. Yeah. Instant history. Yeah. Wait, because if you think about Bombay Sapphire, for example. Oh, it's been around for 200 Wait, I thought that this was a brand from the 80s. I couldn't, com- <laughs> I couldn't comment on Bombay Sapphire. That wouldn't be correct. No, you can leave it up to me. Yeah, I yeah. You know. but, but no, but it is. It's interesting. It's like, this This brand's about 300 years old, right? No, it's a load of rubbish. Like, it's just, but it's so shrewdly marketed, and the narrative is so finely tuned. Yeah. And that's scary. Yeah. yeah. It really is. But, you know, it's not just brands that do that. No, you're right. As, as we've sort of suggested, it could right. be politicians, uh, individuals, um, yeah. Sometimes even musicians, I think, create I think pasts right. for themselves that aren't quite uh, as they may have been. You know, they're personas. Yeah, you know, yeah, just yeah. different facets of a persona. All right, so the, so this we're building this back. Sorry, right? it's going no, all over the. No, place. no, this is great, and I mean, I think it's very pertinent to talk about now, especially. We're all kind of sensitive right now. You know, we're talking about it. You can feel it. You know, you can feel it in the air right now in the city, city like Austin, or if you go to San Francisco, things like that. But. We've got a musician, turns into a historian, studies it. You write about Quakers and your interest in, in religion and history in general. The Golden Age, which I think is a brilliant concept to really talk about. I got to then ask, what is the bridge into the booze industry? Was it because you liked to drink? Was it because you liked the challenge of uncovering the things that were yet to be uncovered? Yeah, that's a good question. So, so... I uh, I wrote a PhD about Quakers. Uh, that that doesn't get you a job, you know. Sadly, <laughs> that doesn't get you girls either, does it? Uh, no, no. <laughs> that would be true. That would be true. And um, so I, I picked up a couple of research jobs, uh, which I was very lucky to get, and uh, they led me on a circuitous route to the University of Glasgow, which is a great academic institution in Scotland, obviously. Yeah. 
where I taught Scottish history for ended up teaching Scottish history about which I probably wasn't particularly well equipped at the beginning, but yeah. I, uh, I, m- I made up ground. <laughs> how, how old are we talking? Uh, I must you... have been about 27 or something. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, okay. So very bright gentleman. Um, teaching as an Englishman, I yeah. can tell you, teaching Scottish history to Scottish students in t- Glasgow was a gas. That? It was so <laughs> entertaining. Uh, Do they have a problem with it inherently, just this dynamic? Like, you're not even from here. Some, no, no I, I don't, no, I don't think. I've, I've never really found any problems in Scotland. Oh, I've so lived it. and worked in Scotland for a long, long time. Yeah. But it was, a, it's, you know, it was a particular opportunity to be quite provocative to young, inquisitive minds, which was quite entertaining. <laughs> I knew I, I knew that's where you're going. Yeah. Love it, love it. Um, so I was teaching Scottish history, and actually, the uh, I had been given a sabbatical, which is when you go off and research. Mm-hmm. I was a big collection of um, largely unread documents about the, de- the physical development of a part of Glasgow's West End, a sort of very famous and beautiful part of the city, um, and the. Um, so it doesn't really matter, but the, the the property developer had gone catastrophically bankrupt. Okay. And the great thing about Scottish law is that when you go bankrupt, the whole process comes into play, which means that lots of documents are created and lots of documents are kept okay. and retained. Oh, interesting. So you had a real insight into the whole sort of development process, the finance behind it, the architecture, and the fact that this guy um, who was had been the developer was a bit crazy. I mean, he's a wonderful personality. Eccentric. So, eccentric, yes. we might say. <laughs> yeah, apologies to any crazy people. I didn't <laughs> eccentric would be the word. It's an it's a, it's a adorning yeah. kind of, yeah. it's a nice thing. Um, so I'd had my mind sort of stuck in this guy's head for six months, you know, which is what history does to you, get yeah. inside people's Method heads. acting. And um, I came back to my desk with sort of six months of correspondence. I have to add, People wrote letters in those days for anyone that doesn't get the idea of correspondence. Yeah. So literally a pile of letters. Uh, and so going through them, and halfway through, there was a letter from a company called United Distillers, uh, which I vaguely knew the name of. Uh, Were you drinking even at this point? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I enjoyed, um, well, been a long time uh, sort of devotee of uh, gin, actually. Gin, yeah. So gin and tonics, one of my Beautiful. favorite drinks. Uh, and I drank whiskey a little bit. I had colleagues at the university who sort of mentored me in whiskey and stuff like that. Done a bit of academic work on whiskey as yeah. well, not a lot. Um, led from this company saying, would I like to go and speak to them about starting up an archive? Interesting. Okay. That's well, like exactly. the perfect gig. Interesting. Yeah. Well, no, not really. Well, maybe not perfect. For, but I mean, historians are not archi- archivists. Historians like to have archives that they can go in and make an absolute mess of right. and all the rest of it. Archivists are very precise, orderly, clear thinking, orderly, ah, and yeah. and they're professionally trained people. I mean, yeah. it's a serious. Sort of so there's a fine distinction between being a historian so, and archive. Anyway, that was as you say, that was interesting. It's like, okay, this is a bit different. Yeah, and um, I discussed it with my then wife. Said, "What do you think? You know, this is this could be interesting." And she was, uh, you know, really encouraged me and said, you need to go and talk to these people. You, know, you need to think about what you're going to say to them as well. <laughs> so I sort of got quite serious about it and uh, had a pitch for them, which was that what they really needed was a professional archivist. That's relatively easy to find. Right. But I was going to be the magic dust between the archive and sort of the business, which was ah. what I felt they probably needed. So anyway, I went to speak to these guys and... Uh, 
they 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 swallowed the magic dust and uh, <laughs> and I was off, off, offered the job the same day and uh, and then a few weeks later when I was still doing my academic job was taken down to this huge bonded warehouse in Leith in Edinburgh which was one of the old centers of the Scotch business mm -hmm. in the 19th century Leith's full of these old places and at the time it was attached to um, a quite strange place where uh, United Distillers owned a company called Crabby's, John Crabby and the company. Okay. And they made green ginger wine, which you would probably call a speciality liqueur. Oh, yeah. Much loved in Scotland with whiskey. It's called Whiskey Mac. So you've got quite hot, spicy ginger wine and then a whiskey, warming whiskey flavor behind it. Nice drink, actually. Yeah. Uh, so they made this ginger wine there. They had, they, uh, had uh, used natural ingredients. Uh, and had steeps, so they brought in wine, I think, from Italy, and they steeped the different n natural ingredients right, right. individually in these different steeps, and then mixed it together and bottled it. And they had had an old whiskey business, which was why they had this bonded warehouse next to the winery, uh, which was, by and large, actually, they also had gin stills, beautiful Did little really? gin stills. Yeah, 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 which I'm not sure what happened to those. They, they were beautiful things. Um and they had this empty bonded warehouse, and I was taken into this bonded warehouse, and the guy who was my, going to be my boss said, well, we want you to fill this up. It's like... Wait, all right, Whoa. what do you fill it with <laughs> specifically? You, so are you filling it with research? With historical records. So it's oh, build man. an archive from scratch, you know? You know, a piece of paper is quite thin. piece of paper is quite thin. <laughs> piece of paper is quite thin. So we, uh, uh, I employed a professional archivist and we had a number of temporary staff in fact now it's a team of six professionals that look after That's this amazing. i mean it's a huge it's the biggest collection of historical records relating to alcohol beverages all, in, all in different the types of segments yes it's scotch gin what do you irish cream liqueur <laughs> i mean <laughs> ginger it's wine Diageo. you you name it it's yeah. in there somewhere you know. what what do you think because i i've you think about the big guys, and you always think that they're concerned about money. Now, I know it wasn't Diageo at this point, but what was the objective for them then? So, you, you, you have to remember a bit of drinks history, I suppose. Diageo had been formed in, um, in uh, 1987 from the rather traumatic uh, merger uh, between the Distillers Company and the Guinness Company. Okay. Um, a company called Argyle Foods, who were uh, run by a man called James Gulliver, who was was as as the distillers company, who were quite snobby, uh, liked to call him was a grocer. A grocer. So he ran a chain. Of, he ran a very large multiple grocery chain, yeah. but nonetheless, he was a grocer. <laughs> um, had made a hostile takeover bid for the distillers company, which was you know a massive yeah. business. Um, so. The distillers company had looked for what we call in the UK a white knight, so someone to come in and help them out of this right, okay. situation. And that was Guinness, which at the time was run by a man called Ernest Saunders. They obviously had the Guinness beers. They also owned Bell Scotch, so they had some distilleries, whiskey brand. Um, and uh, Guinness leapt at the idea, but um, it turned out to be not. They turned out to be not quite the white knights that the distillers company had anticipated. Right. And also, it turned out that there'd been a pretty substantial um, fraudulent share support operation going on to enable Guinness oh, to no. make the purchase. So there was a terrible sort of fallout from this. People went to prison. 
Uh, yada yada yada. Well, I didn't realize. Yeah, I mean, um, have, we wouldn't have heard much about it here. Well, probably. you probably maybe did at the time. I mean, it's a long time ago, yeah. but it's a story that people still remember in the UK wow. for sure. And 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 it's the story is important because what was happening is that, is that the sort of culture and corporate memory of this whiskey business that had been going on since some some of the threads of it, you know, went back certainly to the 18th century, if not with companies like Hague Whiskey to the 17th century. Mm-hmm. And this was all sort of being lost. And uh, when the Guinness guys came in, lots of plants had been closed and offices closed. And the, the, the physical artifacts of the past had been lost, had been sold, had been stolen. So it was really clever thinking, I think, on the part of a few people who said, we need to stop this. We need to stop this now because history is an important part of our culture. And it's a critical part of our brands. You know, yeah. every scotch whiskey brand in the world has got a date on the label somewhere right and the date means something you know and it and and it means it means that yeah at at its sort of simplest it means stories for marketing guys to to play with stories to help people create new brands and you know do great design work you know uh, label books and old advertising So, so there is the twofold kind of element to it. There is an academic and then uh, academic facet yeah, yeah, to it. Yeah, it's yeah. like we need to know these things as part of heritage, tradition, yeah, yeah, history. Yeah. But at the same time, it works for the business. It works it for the business. Does. When when uh, t- let me tell you, <laughs> let me tell you when when a lawyer phones up and says, "Well, you know, it's an interesting thing here because we have um, what I will refer to as Brand X, yeah. which is a rather large brand of blended Scotch whiskey." Uh, with big sales in Latin America, and in one of our biggest markets, someone has challenged our right to use this trademark, ah, yes. uh, which could be, let's say, rather embarrassing for us. So we we need to understand where this trademark came from. Yeah, the paper I mean, that, trail. That, that is when your 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 academic value has dollar signs. Oh, that's amazing! All over yes, it. Yes, you know? you're absolutely right. Yeah. So so this archive that we now have that we that I went to set up and and. Lots of people have put lots of work into it uh, since I've moved on. Um, you, you know, is is a functioning part of of a hard nosed business. Yeah. So it's there because it pays for itself to Those be there the in briefs. a whole range of ways. Yeah, you know? that's a. I, I didn't. Even and Diageo has invested way. millions of pounds into it. Yeah. Millions of pounds. You know, and and I have to say, I can only. Ad- admire the you know the thinking and the commitment that's gone into that. What's well, I mean again because it it's got two great purposes. One of which that is rich and cultural. Yeah. The other which is operational and kind of as you said to some point, making sure that your bases are covered as Absolutely. a business. Yeah. A, how long did this? I I can't one I can't imagine how the multitude or rather just the magnitude of information that you had in this mm-hmm. warehouse. How long did it take you to quote unquote complete fill it up? This to fill it up, yes. Well, we had, I would say, a really wonderful two years out on the road in Scotland and in England as well, hunting stuff down. It yeah. was so exciting, actually. And, uh, you know, I remember visiting one of the distilleries that we owned. Um, which actually Diageo doesn't own now, but uh, one of the UD distilleries on Speyside, and uh, was run by a really nice guy, and uh, he was very friendly, very approachable, and uh, went to see him, 
So I'd run the distillery. Uh, any any records here that you know of? You know, any, what do you got? Yeah. You know, yeah. He said, no, no, I don't know. No, no, nothing like that. <laughs> and uh, so I think that was the first visit. Second visit, just called in. Because this thing was about building relationships. There yeah. was a lot of distrust in the company. I you know. see. Okay. So he's um, not. He probably not, but might not be as forthcoming. Yeah, the first possibly. Time. You know. Yeah. And uh, so, so you know, you just put yourself in front of people as much as you could. So we went back, sat in his office, trapdoor. Okay. <laughs> uh, went back again, called in, and I think on the fourth visit, I said, uh, "Trapdoor, what's up there?" <laughs> uh, he went, "Oh." Oh, there's just some some old stuff. Yeah. <laughs> a globe. So <laughs> so we got so this is Balmenic Distillery actually. So we got we got up there and it was one of the best collections, most complete collections of records relating to any of the distilleries. Because many I mean many distilleries stuff was just thrown out. Right, right. Particularly in the nineteen sixties in the UK. People were not interested in the past. It was all about the future. Yeah. You know, new distilleries were being built, distilleries were being expanded, old buildings knocked down, lots of stuff was lost. But up in this attic, it was like heaven. You know, it was all That's amazing. All there. <laughs> yeah, and, but and, he didn't think about it. He's like, well, we can go up there uh, and look if you uh, want. You know, and uh and so and so that was the sort of things we had, you know, and eventually we accumulated a significant amount amount of material and we we tracked stuff down that had sort of got out of the company and people were kind to give, give us things yeah. and we bought stuff, you know, as you have to. Um, so as I say, what, what those two years, and I mean, it's continued to grow uh, since then, but it's now this huge resource and it's a resource for the, for the industry and for people to the write world. about the industry. Yeah, you know, absolutely. As well as just Diageo. What I, you know, it's funny because I find this interesting parallel that perhaps it's the same you – the pursuit of knowledge, the pursuit of hard copies of you know, records and things, yeah. that you got a new venue every night. You're touring. You are a performance artist, if you think about it. Maybe. You know? Like, that's a pretty good lifestyle. Yeah. How'd the wife feel about it, you being gone all the yeah. time? Well, that's that's my ex-wife, <laughs> um, sadly. Uh, although glad I'm not be. laughing because no, I'm, no, of no. course we, there's we, of... we have kids. Look, we have a great relationship. Good, good. We have a great relationship with my kids, so that's that's good. Um, but it was probably a bit too much time on the road. Yeah, it's it's that's how it goes, you know. But you're devoted to this thing that now seems to be this Lexus Nexus, as we call it, of just information. I can't even imagine. So you've got access to all this information, which means that you inherently now are probably going to understand distillation. You're going to understand all these facets of the business, whether it's malting. Let me tell. Let me tell you one thing. Okay. I, I am not a scientist. Good, okay. th- good. Either am I. Yeah. I, uh, I really wish I understood distillation. And we have, we teach, um, we have a course that we do, an internal course, which is called Malt Advocates Course. Yeah. Okay. And uh, which we set up um, when I got involved in the malt, sort of moved from the archive and got involved in running the malt whiskey business with Diageo. And, um, not only did I realize that I didn't know a great deal about malt whiskey, but yeah. certainly many of the people in the company who were selling it didn't know, know, know that much about it. So we set up this course, which was really very technical, and we, we were so lucky that we managed um, to open the door on the Diageo technical experts yeah. who were so forthcoming in their knowledge. 
Um, and it's sort of, peop- you know, if you ever talk to people that have done it, they'll tell you it's the gold standard in training and all, all the rest of it. And I sat through I don't know how many of those courses. Okay? <laughs> okay. And now we do just one a year where we, or I'm involved in only one a year where we bring in writers and bloggers who are interested in knowing more. Yeah. And so we sort of show them the world of distilling as Diageo sees it. And, you know, every time I do that, well, we did one just, just about a month ago. And I was sitting there and it's like, now I understand that. <laughs> I don't know how many times I've heard this bit. but As long as you get it eventually, right? That. Yeah. There's, man, there's it's a like long that. journey to enlightenment. It really, really is. Yeah. <laughs> but, you, but you know what? There are two ways to think about spirits, right? Or two ways to think about music even, right? Now maybe there's more. But it really comes down to two things. Distilled down to two, two yeah. things. You can feel it yeah. or you can think about it, yeah. right? So how does this make you feel? A wonderful whiskey makes you feel beautiful. You don't have to think about why it's good. It's just as good to you, you know? And so that's the thing is that, yeah, you know, I understand distillation. We do it. But unless the spirit makes me feel something, what's the point anyway? Well, you know, we're doing this thing on Sunday night here here in Austin. And uh, one of the Scotch whiskeys I'm going to talk about is a very famous whiskey from a distillery that's no longer with us Mm. called Brora. Okay. Northeast coast of Scotland. Uh, And this particular bottling... We bottled it in 2004. It's 30 years old. So it's distilled in the 70s. Wow. Uh, this particular, I mean, Brora has a reputation for a certain flavor style, which you might call sort of farmyardy. Okay. okay? Interesting. Would it, would it, can you kind of describe what that means to you? Uh, like pastoral, grassy? Grassy. Well, I'll, okay, I'll use my tasting note and you can edit oh, geez, it. You can edit it out later <laughs> if you want to. It's like goat shit on damp straw. No, I get that. Yeah? That's what bijou tastes like. Yeah. Yes. All right. Perfect. Makes sense. Okay. Oh, okay. Got it. Uh, it. Well, no, it's not like bijou. Bijou is more vegetative. Well, it depends. Uh, yeah, 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 depends. I love it. It tastes yeah. like goat piss, to yes. be honest. Uh, but, but, you know, get, get, so, so if, if you've got your mind in that place, it's also quite sweet. Yeah. You know, and uh, dairyish, cheesyish, a yeah. bit maybe, and stuff like that. So the, and 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 this particular bottling is just astonishing. It really is incredible. So it's, so it's like, well, where does this come from? Yeah, you know how how did this flavor? Because we don't we don't golden age, right? Golden age. Yeah. We don't make whiskey like this anymore. So talking to our technical guys, said, well, you know, how, where where does that come from? So it's a you know it starts in um, you know in Scotland when we mash, we we do three mashes. Mm. And you drain the water off each time three, and that, that goes in to be uh, fermented and to the wash. But the final water you keep to start off the next, the next cycle one, right. of, of ashes. So you need to keep that water at a certain temperature. If you don't, butyrics are going to be yeah. created. And then they will go through into the fermentation process, and that will carry through and dist- into distillation. Right. And that gives you farmyardy, okay? Yeah. So we, we, know, we know how that happens because we don't do it anymore. And I said, well... You know what? I think you might have to well, start doing we should that do again it, yeah. because <laughs> it's just a, one of the craziest tastes. It's a perfect. You know? So, oh man, I'm going to go just deep for a second. But okay. Beatles, you're familiar with Beatles, right? Yeah. So you know, she's so heavy. We we all know yes. that song. Okay, amazing song. Do you, there's that, a that, that's on Abbey Road, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. So I was only thinking um, because I saw a thing on YouTube of some guys who recorded, made a live recording of the whole of Abbey Road. Oh, jeez. And it's brilliant. Go and look. Oh, go, it's and, amazing, go and look. Yeah. For it. It's astonishing. 
and and I, I, I someone told me about it, and and I, yeah, you know, oh, that sounds strange, and and unusually for YouTube, I watched the whole thing. That's crazy. Yeah, Plex and it's a, a bit tear jerking as well because well, you know the, the energy in the room, you know, it's fantastic. That's incredible. Well, there's. So, so, the, I so anyway, back. I just had to reflect. Yeah. That is one of the best Beatles records. Oh, and people don't seem to understand it. You know. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's the best way to go out and is the way they actually yeah. went out. But so the, one of the reasons that I find it, in, it's the imperfections that become perfect. So on She's So Heavy, there's a point where John is screaming. So he's like just screaming at the top of his lungs and you hear the mic peak and distort. In most other records, in most other vocal tracks, no one would ever keep that on the record, yeah. right? But it is perfect because he's enraged. He is coming unhinged. And you get that just rawness and it screws up the tape. It actually distorts the tape. And these are the kinds of things where you're like, well, let's go do that. Well, you can't. You can't go do that intentionally. It's got to happen by accident. So you think about this farmyardy note with the fermentation that was just like, you did it, right? It was a time and place. And you can never really, truly replicate it it's this beautiful mm. imperfections now i know but the, being in that room at that particular time the air is that certain way maybe i'm golden aging it dr nick maybe, maybe. yeah it's hard I, I i was in a guitar store for a couple of hours today looking at very expensive old guitars yeah. and, and i was i was my head was in the golden age of guitars <laughs> pre-cbs fenders no no, no they're no, just no. as good today really you know <laughs> <laughs> the price tickets on those things are crazy. It's it's it is incredible. What's well, it's a very it's really lovely chatting with me. I've still got a couple other questions. Sure. But God, we talk about music. We talk about whiskey. How long you're still with Diageo? Yeah, right? yeah. How long has that been going on now? How long so that's uh, twenty six years. So Good that's Lord. over a quarter of a century. You're pretty. You yeah. should be proud of yourself yeah. for that. Yeah. Has it not Diageo changed? But have. Like I know the answer to this. Is it good the way in which people have changed in terms of their interest for Scotch whiskey? Oh yeah, now, I mean, I um, it's one of the sort of things I talk to uh, talk about to colleagues uh, and sometimes external audiences because I don't think people realise how much well whiskey in general actually, but I'll talk about Scotch yeah. particularly how much the Scotch business has changed, been transformed formed over the past 10 years and i have a graph which i show people which is one of these big graph, you know line going right up into the sky yeah and uh, i show people a graph and i don't tell them what it is and i ask them to tell me what it is so mm. think about scotch That's whiskey good. over the past 10 years what might that be okay uh well here's here's one thing number of whiskey podcasts <laughs> okay number of whiskey bloggers yes you know oh, number sure. of whiskey festivals Number of releases of different single malt yeah. bottlings, uh, number of new distilleries being built. New distilleries ten years ago, people would have thought you were mad. Right? Sorry, people would have thought <laughs> you were. Well, crazy. How about crazy? We'll, crazy, crazy we'll go again. back to yeah, crazy. Yeah. Where you know that you were you you were just in the wrong place if you thought anyone was going to open a new distillery. Yeah. And actually, the graph is the price of our whiskey, Port Allen famous whiskey, which. When we started bottling it over just over ten years ago, we were selling it for a hundred pounds a bottle, and now we're selling it for something like two thousand six hundred oh pounds a God, bottle. And that, that that in itself, I think, captures that transformation of interest, enthusiasm, demand. You all know, of it. Yeah. it's it's and it's wonderful. I, I it, sometimes I have to stop and think because you know you get used to everything so much these days so quickly. Yeah, and you just I think everyone just needs to remind themselves. 
you know, the bad old days, the good old days. Well, we're in a great place. And of course, for bourbon and American oh whiskey, my gosh, you know, love it. on fire. Yeah. You know, absolutely on fire. I was in Kentucky earlier this year. And I spent a lot of time there in the, in the 90s, mid-90s. And, you know, it wasn't a great place. Yeah. And, and the bourbon business was not in great shape uh, at all. Um, and, and sadly, you know, United Distillers and Diageo between them decided to divest themselves of so many of these great brands. Mm. Um, but now you look at it, I mean, talk about transformed. You know, it's crazy. It's a, so, that is so a true whiskey, golden age. W- whiskey, don't, don't tell me you, you want to be great again. Whiskey is so great at the moment. It is. Know, everywhere. It's a, culturally and this era of whiskey and spirits in general, whether it's agave, whether it is gin, mm. we have more selection. We have more greatness yeah. than we've ever had in spirits. And, and the other thing, um, I mean, I'm not a great cocktail person. I have quite limited uh, tastes, mm. and I don't go for some of the more exotic sort of creamy stuff and everything like that. But I had a drink in a bar last night. I had a martini. I got off the plane. I was tired. I just wanted a great drink. And I uh, went into a bar, a great bar, very nice bar, and uh, asked the guy, like, yeah, dry, dry martini, very dry, yeah. olive. Uh, he came back and said, asked me if I wanted it shaken or stirred, which is great because yeah. I wanted it stirred and I hadn't asked him. And he made me a great drink. And I think that's something that's so different. And it's the same in London. You know, everyone cares a lot more about the drinks they they're do. making or they're serving you. And that's, that's a wonderful thing. It's shown to be a concept that's worth working with. Yeah. It's become lucrative yeah. you know, if you think about it, this industry. Well, so you're here because Austin's great and your yes. daughter suggested it. I'm here because Austin's weird. <laughs> you are, in fact, like on a concrete slab in a distillery <laughs> right now. Weird? I don't know. It's great. I lo- I'm loving it. Actually. It's, it's, it's gritty, right? Yeah. So Sunday, though, we've got a you and Lana from both working. She was working with Dickel, still doing a lot yep. of Dickel stuff with them. You happen to be in town. Apparently, you're going to bring some incredible marks. What was the occasion? You guys just wanted to hang out and share? So, so the... Um the original thought was just to do a tasting, I think, of scotch. Yeah. And then the idea came, well, let's, let's taste some scotch and some American whiskers. Beautiful. Uh, and then it got a bit more aggressive. <laughs> uh, so someone thought of the phrase, the whiskey wrecking crew and the American whiskey versus scotch sort of shootout he sound less sad, yeah. Kind of thing, yeah so so it's got a sort of competitive element about it but we, we're going to be tasting some great american whiskies and some truly great uh scotch whiskies and letting our audience i think decide which they like best that is, and of course they might decide they just don't have a preference because they're all it's all great yeah at some point it's all good what are you gonna do yeah. it's you're just lucky to be alive at that point yeah. i mean being i'll see you on sunday for for certain but it sounds like just an amazing kind of free-form thing. It's about the love of whiskey, you know, and bringing people together again. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, Mike. I did, I did a, an interview with, actually with someone else in the, in, in the U.S. recently, and um, I did have to point out that, that whiskey is a thing of the heart for me, yeah. you know. And I, and I think it's easy to lose sight of that. And, you know, people think about Diageo being a big, cruel, monster, <laughs> greedy corporate <laughs> big beer, fail, you know? yeah. But we have as much heart uh, amongst our whiskey makers and the people that sell our whiskey 
uh, in Diageo as, as anyone working at the scale as you do here in, in your small gin distillery, your yeah. beautiful small gin yeah. distillery. Thank you, thank you. Um, and, uh, and everyone has heart for whiskey, you know, and sometimes you see the heart coming out when people just talk, and the love when people talk, talk about it. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a, a great, really it's a great thing. So, so it's, you know, I'm a privilege these 25 years. I'm now paid to talk about Scotch whiskey. And uh, as you're probably beginning to regret, you can see that I could talk about Scotch whiskey <laughs> at length. No, this is a lovely um, thing for me. It's a really But, you know, it's just, it's just a privilege to share some of these stories, uh, some, some of these wonderful whiskies, to think about how they got to taste like, like they do, yeah. uh, to think about how whiskey might taste in 10 years' time as well, which is quite interesting. I, again, you know, I go back to the music. I always do. Find this way. Find this mu- mu- magical way to go back. Yeah. But you're traveling the world, talking about something you love, performing in a sense. You're presenting. You're sharing. It's about as close to being a musician and on the road and on stage as you can get. You know, whiskey has some rock stardom to it now that it didn't used to have. You know? Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed because someone actually um, described a presentation I did about Lagavulin as being the nearest thing to making Lagavulin a rock star whiskey <laughs> or something. But I think that was because I was swearing a lot at that one. Um, Throwing whiskey on people. Yeah, in the all of that stuff. But it's, uh, yeah, may- maybe there's a similarity. I think there's a, well, here's, here's the thing, interesting thing. I know so many whiskey people yeah. who, are, who love music. Yeah. who are either great musicians or great collectors of, of uh, vinyl and sure. stuff like that, you know. And um, those are the whiskey people I tend to love. And, you know, you, we all get on really well together. Yeah. You know. Well, it's, you know, having not met you and read a bit about your academic, academic pursuits, we could just sit down here and shoot the shit. It was really easy, man. I really appreciate you taking the time Thank you. out. It's been just lovely and brilliant chatting with you. And I can't wait to... See what marks you guys have on Sunday. Yeah, well, wait till wait till you taste the brewer. Believe me, I'm going to be thinking Stip. about farmland. Taste <laughs> the resistance, as the uh, French would say. Really, really, th- thank you for stopping by, and uh, we'll talk soon, Doctor Nick. Thanks, thank Mike. You. Thanks very much. Well, there we have it, Doctor Nicholas Morgan, director of outreach of Whiskey for Diageo, a sophisticated, classy, cultured guy, had an interesting career starting kind of in academia transitioning into whiskey i mean it's a really brilliant journey and just to sit and hang out with him and kind of just feel the breadth of knowledge that he possesses the breadth of experiences just to be a fly on the wall in some of those shows that he saw and some of the things he saw go down i mean it's just really an amazing experience for me so thank you so much lana from diageo for hooking me up with dr nick and dr nick i hope next month when i'm in london with my lovely wife that we get to share an emergency martini and another dram or two so thanks everybody for listening to show to v with mike g no matter which of the rare malts you would like to try out of the new diageo portfolio or if you're wondering why the hell people are fighting for unborn lives when they won't fight for immigrants themselves please keep thinking.